Welcome to the Real Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lambert. In an hour when deception and apostasy is rampant on earth, the need for proclaiming the real truth has never been more desperate. Jesus prophesied, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Proclaiming the real truth of the written and rhema prophetic word of God that he is revealing in this hour concerning the church Jesus is building is our goal. Affecting real change in the hearts and minds of believers in Christ in order to fulfill the purposes and plans of God is our purpose. This is Dr. Stephen Lambert with a message concerning prophetic purpose. With all the proliferation and promotion of the prophetic happily taking place now in some streams and camps of the church, it is critical that we understand what the true purpose of the prophetic really is. Some prophetic novices and neophyte prophetic groups appear to think that prophecy itself whether in the form of personal prophecy or publishing prophecies on the Internet, for example, is the goal of the prophetic. Moreover, the actions, attitudes, and speech of some regarding the prophetic seem to indicate they think that prophecy or prophesying is an end in itself. But it's not. Though it may seem enigmatic to say, prophecy is not the purpose of the prophetic. The true purpose of the prophetic is not the prophetic itself as an end in itself. It's not just prophesying. It's not seeing who can prophesy the most, the loudest, the longest, the most authoritative sounding, or the most profoundly. It's not to use the prophetic to build a name for oneself or to promote a ministry or publicize a minister, or proliferate of movement, or to develop a means of support for a minister, or income for a ministry, or to sell books, or to become well-known or famous, or to build a church, or a following, or a prophetic organization, or to achieve personal ambitions. The true purpose of the prophetic is none of those things. To understand what the true purpose of the prophetic is, we first have to understand what purpose is. Purpose is one of five elements of vision. Purpose is the vehicle of vision. Purpose is what defines and drives the vision. Of all the elements of vision, purpose is the most critical. Without purpose, there will be no performance of the vision. Without a place to go, a destination or destiny, there's no need for a vehicle. Without destiny, there is no need for purpose. Purpose is the substance of destiny. Purpose and destiny are not synonymous, but they are symbiotic. 
They are inextricably linked and interdependent, and yet they are distinct. One is meaningless without the other. Purpose has no reason to exist without destiny, for purpose is the servant of destiny. Destiny cannot be attained without purpose. Everyone is born with a destiny. In order to attain unto our destiny, we must have a vision for our destiny. We must envision and know our destiny so that it can act as a road map to tell us where we're going. And then we must have a purpose to take us there. As someone has so aptly said, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. That's why God told the prophet Habakkuk to write the vision down, to delineate it, explain it, make it plain, make it understandable, so that those who are running to complete the vision, those who are running in the race, may run to the finish line. You can't run to the finish line or carry the ball to the goal line if you don't know where it is. This message is not about vision per se, and there has been an abundance of teaching about the subject of vision over the last few years. But prophetic people do need to gain some understanding of the relationship of vision to the prophetic realm. Vision has to do with seeing. If anyone should be about vision, it is prophets and prophetic people. The Bible tells us that prophets were first called seers before they were called prophets. Prophets see or perceive things that are not perceived by or manifestly obvious to others. Many who will be hearing this message are prophetic people. You have an affinity for, a calling to, an inward connection with the prophetic. Among the hearers of this message, there are prophetic people of every type and every stage in development and maturation. Many of you have been tutored and or trained to varying degrees in the prophetic. Others are prophetic leaders themselves who are mentoring others in the prophetic. Some have ministered in the prophetic realm for a number of years, while others only for a short time. Some have been reading, studying, and learning all you can about the prophetic realm from whatever source of information and teaching you can find. Some of you may be old hands at operating in the prophetic gifts and some in the prophetic office, while others may be just learning how to operate in either or both. Nevertheless, regardless of your level or length of experience and expertise in the prophetic, I can tell you that unless you understand prophetic purpose, that is the purpose of the prophetic, you will never tap into the dimension of prophetic flow that emanates from the Spirit of God and operate in the measure of the anointing that God intends to operate through you. No matter how much knowledge you obtain regarding the prophetic gifts and office, you will never understand it as you need to understand it. You will never have the revelation you need to have about it 
You will never be used in it as you desire or even as God desires you be used in it. You will never have the full measure of the anointing that God intends for you to have unless you understand it, not in a vacuum or as an end in itself, not abstractly, but contextually, that is, understanding its proper application, its ultimate goal and mission, its purpose. To understand the true prophetic purpose, we must turn to the prophetic prototype, the preeminent prophet, Jesus himself, and examine carefully the prophetic paradigm inherent in his earthly life and ministry. Enjoying this podcast? Please take a minute to pray if the Lord would have you help us with the substantial financial burden of this program. We receive no grants or funding from any organization or government agency and have no other means of support than the gracious and generous giving of our listeners. SLM Inc. bears the entire burden. In about 30 seconds, you can donate at paypal.me forward slash SLM Inc. Again, that's paypal.me forward slash S-L-M-I-N-C to give any amount. Thank you for your gifts, generosity, and graciousness. 1 John 3.8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that He might destroy the works of the devil. In this verse, the Holy Spirit revealed through the writing of the Apostle John that Jesus' primary purpose was to destroy the works of the devil. He said that the primary reason the Son of God appeared was for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. Destroying or negating, undoing, reversing, bringing to naught the works of the devil meant restoration and redemption. The end result of his primary purpose was the restoration and redemption of all things in the creational order of God that the devil had corrupted, perverted, and deterred through the perdition of man and the permeation of the world with his carnal nature of sin. Of course, at the apex of that list of the corrupted that Jesus restored and redeemed was the apple of God's eye, his mankind creation. Jesus had a singular primary purpose. This was his mission, his calling, and his destiny. And his purpose was his motivation, what drove him, what compelled him to do all that he did during his fleshly life and ministry here on earth in order to fulfill his mission, calling, and destiny. That purpose, mission, motivation, and calling, as stated succinctly by the Spirit through the Apostle John, was to, quote, destroy the works of the devil, end quote. It was for this purpose and destiny that he voluntarily and eagerly left the portals of glory 
cast aside his deity in an act of inscrutable humility, stooped to take on human form, was born in a lowly manger stall, lived for thirty-three and a half years as a human, endured the pangs of rejection, sorrows, testings, scorn, ridicule, mocking, and disdain of his own family and people, unspeakable suffering, humiliation, death, and even momentary separation from his Father God. He did all that for a solitary purpose, to reverse the curse, to give his life as a ransom for the many, an exchange of the sinless for the sinful, the guiltless for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. The sins of the world were laid upon the spotless Lamb of God to redeem us and save us from the eternal punishment and banishment we so rightly deserved. Jesus had a destiny. He had a purpose that drove him to Calvary, that put a bounce in his step and briskness in his cadence as he marched triumphantly out ahead of the disciples toward Jerusalem and the horrid fate that awaited him when the time for his suffering had come. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. The sheer euphoria of foreseeing his mankind creation at last redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, restored back into right standing and relationship with Father God. This final outcome, redemption and restoration, is what motivated the God of love and the God of all grace to come to earth and become one of us in order to give his life as a propitiation and substitutionary sacrifice in exchange for ours. But as glorious and central to the gospel of Christ as the prize of human redemption is, too often we focus upon it virtually to the exclusion of the restoration aspect of what he came to earth to accomplish. The Greek word used in the New Testament 118 times to refer to various aspects of the restoration that Jesus effected by his death, burial, and resurrection is sozo, S-O-Z-O. The King James translators rendered the variants of this word saved all but a few of the times it appears. A host of evangelical concepts revolve around that rendering of that small but key word of the gospel. An emphasis of evangelical teaching is that salvation, or being saved, means that we have a home in heaven and that believers will go to heaven when they die. And thank God that is true. However, the word sozo, per se, has nothing to do with heaven or us going there. Rather, it connotes to restore, to return to a former condition, to heal, to make whole. And it is even the root component for the word that connotes sanctification, that is, to make holy. 
Seeing the salvation that Jesus purchased for us with his shed blood in this light gives it another dimension of meaning and makes the significance of John's declaration in 1 John 3, 8 concerning Jesus' purpose for coming to earth more understandable and its application more comprehensible. Jesus' purpose in coming to earth certainly included our salvation and redemption, but it also transcended human salvation and redemption to encompass all manner of restoration necessitated by sin's corruption. Now let me qualify some of these terms for a moment. In saying what I have just said, lest I be misunderstood, I must take a moment to explain that I'm not talking about the kind of restoration that was posited by some extreme and erroneous teachings that emerged during the latter rain movement that began in the late 1940s, known as the Manifested Sons of God Doctrine, which is still espoused and proliferated by myriads part of neo-Pentecostal streams today. As I have indicated, those teachings are extreme and erroneous, and the restoration proposed by them, as well as the eschatological process by which they purport it will transpire, are unequivocally incongruous and even antithetical to Scripture, and simply false. So also is the other prominent doctrine that was associated with that movement and likewise continues to be espoused and proliferated by myriads of neo-Pentecostals, what was referred to as the oneness doctrine or modalism to use theological terminology, or another theological term is actually Unitarianism, juxtaposed to Trinitarianism. Indeed, these are two other salient errors that the Neo-Pentecostal Church will one day have to deal with if it is ever going to see the genuine manifestation of the doctrinal unity spoken of in God's Word in such passages as Ephesians 4, 3, and 5. This is not an issue about a non-essential element of the gospel, as so many others are, that spark fleeting controversy within the church. Much to the contrary, there simply cannot be a more central theological or truth issue than that of who God is. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or merely one person who manifested himself in three different modalities. And though this too is not the subject of this article, I think it by no means coincidental that the purveyors of the other major heretical teachings that have corrupted and damaged the Pentecostal and Neo-Pentecostal movements, such as the Discipleship Shepherding Doctrines, espouse as well these erroneous doctrines that emerged from the latter rain movement. Indeed, the five major principles of that movement were all latter rain disciples, as are so many of the most prominent charismatic and neo-Pentecostal patriarchs and leaders. Moreover, this is also a problem plaguing the apostolic prophetic renewal in that many Pentecostals and Charismatics and other camps or streams are reticent to accept and associate themselves with it because restoration of the apostolic office especially has for many years, really all the way back to Azusa Street, been linked with oneness Pentecostals. 
So I'm not referring to restoration in the way that it is taught in those doctrines. Rather, the kind of redemption and restoration that I am talking about and that the Apostle John was talking about is personal redemption and restoration, the undoing in the lives of human beings of the effects of Satan's corruptive schemes and strategies, which are a direct consequence of the permeation of the world with sin that the devil originated and the perdition of mankind that transpired with the permeation of the human spirit with the sin nature of Satan at the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That is what John was telling us was the ultimate purpose of Jesus' manifestation in human form on the earth in his statement, the Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. The Apostle John, who was reportedly the closest of all the disciples to Jesus and for whom Jesus had a special affection, and who witnessed most all of Jesus' miracles firsthand, is telling us in this passage that the works that Jesus performed during his fleshly life and ministry were all aimed at, quote, destroying the works of the devil, end quote. Whether it was in the form of healing the sick, lame, blind, deaf, and paralyzed, negating death and raising from the dead, delivering the demonized and operating in the gift of discerning of spirits, revealing a word of knowledge or wisdom, or proclaiming prophetic insight or counsel into someone's present or future, setting at liberty the psychologically traumatized and bruised. All these were Jesus' works to destroy the works of the devil. You're listening to The Real Truth Podcast. Other episodes of the podcast can be found at realtruthradio.com. Jesus instructed his disciples then, as well as his disciples today, to be about the Father's business, to occupy until he returns. The way we do all of that is by performing the works of Jesus, doing the works that he did during his ministry on earth. All genuine ministry is merely the extension and continuum of the ministry and mission of Jesus. And Jesus' ministry and mission, as we have seen, are summed up in the statement, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Thus, the primary purpose of all valid ministry, including prophetic ministry, is to destroy the works of the devil. The ultimate goal of all genuine ministry and all of its facets, from salvation to redemption, to right standing, to justification, to restoration, to all manner of healing, to deliverance, to sanctification, spirit, soul, and body is to in some way destroy the works of the devil in people, and to that extent, the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time on this planet. The supernatural power 
to perform his works is his power. It flows from him. And his power is connected with his purpose. When we become connected with his purpose, that is, plugged into the source of power, we become conduits of his power. Concerning his works, operations of supernatural power, Jesus said to his disciples, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. That's John fourteen ten through 12. And then on the day of ascension, Jesus did indeed go to the Father. After having been raised from the dead on that original resurrection morning, which Christians have celebrated every year since, and appearing to the apostles and many others in his resurrected body on what we now call the day of ascension, he was taken up on a cloud and ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. But something else happened that day as Jesus was ascending, an awesome and totally astounding transaction in the spirit realm, which none of those present that day, apparently, though understandably, perceived. Who among us would not have been transfixed by the glorious events those present that day witnessed? Jesus being transported upward into heaven on a cloud of glory, and two angels arrayed in dazzling white garments that glowed, who appeared and spoke unto them those now infamous words, Men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? And to a great extent, and to its detriment, that is where the church as a whole has been and what it has been doing for 2,000 years, standing and gazing up into heaven, transfixed on the splendiferous event of the ascension of Christ into heaven and his promised, likewise glorious return. Instead of picking up the mantle that fell down upon us, Allah, Elijah, and Elisha, and setting out to strike the waters with his mantle, so to speak, and crying out, Where is the God of Elijah? And going forth with his mantle of power, effectualized by his great commission battle cry declaration, Mark sixteen fifteen through 18, to operate the works of Jesus, acts of supernatural power, unto a lost, dying, and sin-corrupted generation. We can totally understand, though, how those present that day were so mesmerized by the natural events they were witnessing with their own eyes. Yet the result of their transfiction with the natural 
was apparently that none of them saw what the Apostle Paul saw by the Spirit that transpired as Jesus was ascending into heaven. For it was Paul, the Apostle born late, not Peter, James, John, or any of the twelve, all of whom were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ascension, who revealed to us what Paul perceived by revelation of the Spirit concerning what transpired in the spirit realm as Jesus was ascending into heaven. That is what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 8 through 11. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Again, that's Ephesians 4, 8 through 11. This passage and the verses that follow which have become so familiar to many in the charismatic and apostolic prophetic renewal, are revealing to us the truth that as Jesus was ascending into heaven, he relegated or delegated to men the ministry giftings he himself had manifested during his fleshly ministry. The gifts that he imparted were what we now refer to as the fivefold ministry offices. And the verses that follow reveal the divine purpose inherent in those gifts that he bestowed upon men. One, the equipping of the saints for the work of service or ministry, to enable them, that is the saints, to do the works of Jesus and complete his continuing ministry. We see that in verse 12. Number two, spiritual and numerical growth. The equipped saints, believers, build up the body of Christ spiritually and numerically through their ministry works. That's also in verse 12. Number three, truth-centric unity, singleness of mind and solidarity of purpose, centered around consensual faith in and knowledge concerning the Son of God. That is in verse 13. Number four, maturing of the body of Christ. Unto a mature, that is perfected, man, to the measure of the stature, Christ's character, which brings Christ's power and anointing, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Again, in verse 13. Number five, doctrinal purity and stability so that the body of Christ will no longer be like children, being tossed about, being led here and there by false doctrine, and captivated by the trickery and deceitful scheming of men, but will be founded, grounded, and stabilized in sound doctrine. Number six, corporate character development. By speaking the truth in love, love and grace-tempered reproof, The body of Christ will grow up in all aspects unto Christ, becoming conformed 
into the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29, reflecting his image as the moon reflects the image of the sun, so that the collective body of Christ will be lights in the midst of the blackness of a crooked and perverse generation, verse 15. Number seven, consinity. All of the various and diverse parts of the body working together to form one unified body, the body of Christ, working together in harmony and one accord that results when each part is functioning properly and supplying to the body the unique benefit or function it is designed to provide. That's in verse 16. Number eight, purpose and destiny. Consinity causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Actions of otherness, the ultimate goal of the instruction of God's word. See Timothy 1.5. So Jesus relegated and delegated giftings, which include the prophetic gifts and office for the carrying on of his ultimate purpose and plan of building his church, over which the gates or the powers of hell or Hades would and will not prevail, Matthew 6, 18. We see then that the church, the body of Christ, the betrothed of Christ, which will ultimately be the bride of Christ, the Lamb's wife, is the ultimate purpose and plan of God and Christ. We are it. Hence, we see also that prophetic purpose ultimately is the edifying or building up of Jesus' church. And as I have already stated, when those of us who are a part of the prophetic division of God's army at last get plugged into Christ's purpose, we will be plugged into his power as he was during his fleshly ministry on earth so that we can work the works of Jesus that are aimed at destroying the works of the devil. For it is like plugging an electrical appliance into an electrical outlet, the source of power which empowers it to perform its intended purpose. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Real Truth. I'm Stephen Lambert. Please subscribe to the podcast, share with your friends, and visit realtruthradio.com to join our mailing list. Be sure to tune in to the next edition of The Real Truth. Until then, this is Stephen Lambert reminding you that with God all things are possible and all things work together for good to them who love God and are called according to His purpose.